Welcome to the January 2018 edition of Bookplate. Find us on the web at foreveryoungadult.com. Join a book club chapter in your area or start your own by visiting us online and clicking on the book club link at the top. Don't forget to check out our monthly themed wallpaper created by graphics goddess Mandy C, which is always featured at the top of the page. This month, it is just Britt and I, but I'm Annie, your apprentice sound engineer and podcast editor. I am from the San Francisco chapter of Forever Young Adult. And I'm Britt, also from SFFYA. New here, same me. (laughs) (laughs) Britt's birthday is tomorrow, so. (laughs) I'm sorry I don't have, like, gifts and cake and confetti for you, but I have dick confetti if you want, the weenie (laughs) confetti if you want some of that. I still have some left over from your bachelor party. (laughs) (laughs) Always amusing. This month we are talking about All American Boys. This is the story of two sides of the racial divide in this country centered around an episode of police violence. The Voice of Rashad is written by Jason Reynolds, while Quinn's perspective is written by Brendan Keeley. We're going to do our other cover take. So randomly, when I was reading this book, my husband's friend Dylan came over and saw me with it. He looked at the book and he was like, oh, yeah, that's my cousin. Dylan is a tall, skinny white dude. So I gave him a funny look and he's like, oh, clearly the white guy. (laughs) So we chatted a little more. And he said, although he's never met Jason Reynolds, his cousin was really glad to be working with him. I pointed out that (laughs) Reynolds' bio is like much more interesting than Keeley's, which was basically like standard book flap bio. I don't think I read either of the bios. I always always look look at the back. Although I listened to the audiobook, actually, so that would make sense why I didn't read the bios. Reynolds' bio was like cool, and it made me want to look him up, but Jason Keeley's bio is basically like standard book flap. Wait, they're both named Jason? Jason Reynolds and then Brandon Keeley. Oh, okay. What was your other cover take? So I asked my husband Garrett, and he looks at the cover, and he's like, clearly somebody is about to get shot by the cops, because there's flashing lights, and they've got their hands up, and I said, okay, elaborate, and he's like, well, I want to go out on a limb here and say it's a black kid and a white cop. <laughs> I'm like, gee, I wonder how you knew that. Not really. <laughs> Um, but yeah, he said, he said that. And then I said, okay, so what happens? And he's like, well, nothing because nothing ever happens mm. to the cops who do this. And, um, he said that the title all American boys was referring to the cops cause they're like, can get away with this kind of shit. And I was like, well, yeah, I mean, that's kind of the gist except for, um, he gets beaten instead of shot. But thank goodness. I was, I was not ready for the, uh, dead kid. Yeah. Take on I don't know if we have a place in the menu to talk about that, but I had I kind of wanted to talk about the idea of like the main character being someone who survives this rather mm. than somebody like their friend or somebody else's perspective. Yeah, I don't know. If no, talk about it. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, I mean, I feel like comparisons to the hate you give are just inevitable given the subject matter, but I think what sets it apart is that we do get to hear Rashad's perspective like it's it would be like if this book was written from um English's perspective that would be a a lot more like the hate you give like the immediate kind of circle of friends of this person but I don't think I've read a book where we actually get to hear from the person who was the victim of like police violence and then and I thought the dual perspective added another interesting layer on it as well I liked it. I liked the back and forth. Dual authors are sometimes, it, it can sometimes come off as like contrived. Right. But I actually did not feel that with this book. I didn't either. And like I said, I, I listened to the audiobook and 
there were two different narrators, which I think just really brought the story to life. I also listened to the audiobook of 13 Reasons Why, and they had dual narrators. So there was like mm. one for Hannah and one for Clay, um, like Hannah, like reading the tapes and stuff. And I just thought it just made it like really powerful. And I wanted to just play a teensy bit of like the preview of the audiobook, just because the actor who voices Rashad is just amazing. Like sometimes I. I'm like, mm, I don't know if I want to read this one or get it on audio because I have like two hours of commute time every day <laughs> and I'll listen to like a clip or a sample and I'm like, mm, maybe I don't really know if the narrator's voice jives with me. And this one, 10 seconds in, I was like, audio. <laughs> <laughs> so let's see if this works. I'll put my volume all the way up. Friday. Rashad. Yo, left. Yo, left. Yo, left. Right, left. Yo, left. school and that even more whack ROTC drill team because it was Friday, which to me and basically every other person on earth meant it was time to party. Yeah. So, I mean, <laughs> that was just like, it, he just brings so much personality to the role. And then like there were, he does voices for like the other characters who are interacting with Rashad. And like when he was in the hospital and like the parents brought the preacher over, like his black preacher, for, I died. <laughs> <laughs> It's like, and God uh, says this and that, uh, whatever. And I'm just like, yes. <laughs> that was uh, one of my favorite moments <laughs> in the yeah. book. And, um, and I mean, Quinn's narrator is also really good in like a more subtle way. But like, I think my favorite character that the Quinn actor voices is Quinn's mom. Um, he just conveys a lot of like the motherly concern and stuff without like doing the thing that male narrators sometimes do, which is like, oh, and then, you know, with the voices, like. I thought it was good. Definitely recommend the audiobook if you're into audiobooks. <laughs> I, yeah, I haven't, I don't know if I've ever listened to an audiobook outside of listening to one with someone else mm. who's into them. Jamal, my husband, doesn't read. He basically listens to audiobooks and he's yeah. been listening to Octavia Butler's. Uh, I want to get into her. <laughs> it's, I haven't read anything by her, but I just have all of these books by her on my to read list. I mean, her writing is incredible. I was actually yeah. saying this after we were listening to it in the car on a trip and after listening to it for the car ride, I was like, she, her language is so minimal, but it creates an amazingly very like variegated world like she doesn't have any flowery words it's not a lot of description it's just like super basic but you see exactly what's happening and that's just like really highly skilled I was bringing that one up because the narrator of that one has like a really aspirated t or like an s that pops and I that was the only issue I was having Mm. is I was being distracted by the sound of that in the in the narration yeah the narrator can totally make or break it yeah i mean yeah. i liked the narrator i think it was just like it was actually like the recording of the narration and because um, i'm practicing this you know i was like oh man why didn't they do that and she was like oh they didn't use an s stop or whatever like they not, it's not s stop but like they didn't use a, a cover to change that or like minimize that in the sound okay. and so i was like ah okay you know, I was talking to, I've, I've had this conversation with my sister who's also super into audiobooks and podcasts. And I was like, you know, I have this thing with language where the way the person's voice sounds absolutely determines whether or not I want to listen to it or not, which mm-hmm. is why I don't do This American Life. 
because I don't like Ira Glass's voice. No offense, Ira Glass. It's just not for me. You know, I actually prefer Kyra's doll from Marketplace <laughs> Money <laughs> from NPR. You know, like I like that more like old Hollywood style actor voice. Mm -hmm. So when, you know, when I'm picking my like audio things to listen to, I have to, I have to realize like my prejudices are wide. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Often it's easier for me to read because then I can just give them the voice I want. Yeah. The audiobooks are super great. I think that's a really great medium, especially for folks who like don't or can't read these days. So yeah. there's a lot of audiobooks. Uh, well, maybe not a lot. I don't know. Do full cast oh, wow. narration, which is really cool. Each character is a different person and there's like sound effects and things like that. The only one I've listened to is the Graveyard Book. Mm. That was really cool. And I know Golden Compass is also full cast. Oh, see. And I've never read that. There's a lot of childhood <laughs> classics that I've never read. So I was thinking about doing that in audio at some point. That would be fun. Yeah. I would. I think that I'd be probably more into that. Yeah. It feels more like you're listening to like a, a play or mm -hmm. something. Yeah. Well, skipping ahead to our appetizer, barbecue chips and hospital fare, I put hashtag culture on here. They have a hashtag in the book. And I, being a Twitter fan, I want to know, is something a movement if there's no hashtag? Today? Like in 2018? I don't know. Because, I mean, that's one of the cool things about Twitter is that it is this kind of center to organize people across different areas and I guess hashtag started off as a way to kind of look something up and see all the posts about that thing but I think turning it into a movement is kind of cool it's part of a movement if it's the entire movement then no <laughs> then it's just like kind of like for show but Twitter has turned out to be a good way to to mobilize people to come together physically or, you know, financially or whatever for causes. Yeah, I, I think it's really, it's very powerful, but I'm yeah. not, I'm just not sure how I feel about it. And then there's, in recent conversations, I've seen reappropriating of hashtags, for instance, in the Me Too movement. Mm. There was a lot of, like, confused use of that hashtag. Okay. People trying to say Me Too who weren't necessarily, who hadn't necessarily been assaulted or the other one I've seen is I've been following the Colton Bushi trial in Canada where a Colton, a native kid was shot and killed by a white man and an all white jury let the man walk. There was no manslaughter charge or wrongful Shocking. death or anything because it's one Canada. So it's not our country and two it's native indigenous communities. It's not black culture they were using hashtags that had come out of the Black Lives Matter movement. Mm. And so there was this conversation happening about why can't we have our own hashtags? Is it appropriating if we're if we're using this, the hashtag for our movement? And the thing I saw there is like, well, if you've just taken a hashtag that someone's already done the work in making a thing, then you haven't done the work yourselves. Yeah. Not saying that you haven't done work. Now hashtags have this like ownership yeah. over them. In a way that, again, not sure how I feel about it because the original concept of hashtags is they're basically like a reference word. Yeah. You know, it's like when we did the card catalog, you would look something up based on a reference word. Remember and that, kids? <laughs> <laughs> and now we use hashtags for media because it's easy way to like cross-reference things. Right. And to follow something that you're interested in. And again, this goes back to our conversation we had last month about like, can you own language? Language changes. Meanings of words change. So yeah, I, I don't have a 
final <laughs> thoughts on that. I just think it's really interesting to watch that happening and to see how it's now coming up in literature. Yeah. Because this book is going to live longer than whatever Twitter hashtag I'm assuming, unless unless online media has like a longer life than we're used to media having. Yeah, that is really interesting. And then I think using names as hashtags has been good, but then also we now have so many names. Yeah. I'm not saying that we shouldn't know them. Yeah. I'm just saying like if you're following a movement, if you're just following the name instead of the movement, you would have to list all of them to understand like the full context of what you're looking at. Yeah. We'll see how that plays out further in our lives, you know, because we're from the generation where this is just been started to be used like Twitter's right. what not even 10 years old now or is it right. 10 years old uh, maybe I started using it in college so probably around 10-ish years yeah mm. yeah it was like relatively new when I started but I also wasn't like an early adopter or anything I'm just like all right I've been hearing a lot about this Twitter thing I'm gonna see what this is about <laughs> yeah probably about 10 maybe a little more so we'll see. I don't know. Do the hashtags go into the Library of Congress? You know, the Library of Congress was archiving all tweets and now they're choosing which tweets to archive. Right. A lot of that is interesting, especially as we move forward with social justice movements that are leveraging these new tools. Mm -hmm. The reason I think Twitter is so powerful is because like it, it basically like fed the Arab Spring, right? Like there were uprisings because people were using Twitter instead of like the oppressive government's tools it was a way to get mm -hmm. outside of that and have conversations outside of that which is why some governments ban it <laughs> right so i think it's like super powerful but then it's like it's still in the hands of whoever right anything has the power to like be misused by the people who want to do that so i'll click on a hashtag because i want to see what other people post about that thing and then there'll be somebody who uses a hashtag and like is promoting their youtube channel or whatever mm -hmm. like just to get the clicks and to get this out to more people because they know they can mm -hmm. and stuff like that. It will be interesting to see how it plays out over our lifetimes. But they thought they used it effectively in the book. Yeah. Actually. Our main course here is Mother's Pizza and Paul's Burgers. <laughs> Rashad's dad. So I there's a really intense moment where Rashad's dad tells him the story of being a police officer mm -hmm. and choosing to, in a heightened moment to shoot the black kid mm -hmm. and he and he actually paralyzes the kid from the waist down and then it turns out of course like the, the kid wasn't the one in the wrong mm -hmm. so I thought that was a really good story to illustrate how there's no clear cut there's no clear cut lines here yeah and it really made me think about my relationship to my parents and if they have something devastating that they've hidden from me he's never heard that story before right so it took him being hospitalized for his dad to finally share something that like has colored the rest of his life. I don't think that was it. I think the dad knew that he was that it would come up eventually. Be yeah, because like, you know, everybody, the whole world's eyes are on this kid. And of course, like the Internet, there's no secrets from the Internet. The dad was like, well, I really didn't. I was hoping to kind of have this secret go to the grave with me but it's better that he found out from me than from a google search mm. to me it felt kind of obligatory and i feel like it wasn't explored as in-depth as it could have been it felt like see black cops can you know shoot black people too without really getting to the underlying idea that it is so systematic that that is the case that like it's not about individual white cops it's about a system that sees black people as the enemy or the danger 
and that it's like so pervasive that even cops of color like get into that mentality without it i feel like it didn't really get into that and even when the dad showed up at the march at the end it felt like but why like what made you get to this point i wish they had explored it more i think that's a really that's such a hard topic yeah i think there's still a lot more dialogue to be had about how we discuss that and i think your point about this being an issue book that is part of the issue but the issue that we're looking at is how does finally hearing from the victim change the dialogue in this particular um, story yeah I think it would have been a much longer book if we added that in there it would have yeah I just and I know like you know one book can't do everything sorry I'm thinking about my own family secrets (laughs) which if you've been listening to this podcast since like the beginning um my dad had a child at age 19 that he never mentioned to me or my younger brother and like was totally content to pretend this kid didn't exist until like my brother and I he found us on Facebook so like that immediately makes me think that like oh this dad didn't really want to tell him Mm -hmm. he just knew it would be worse if he found out from somewhere else because I feel like if my dad had come to me and said this like it still would have been really shitty but like he would have been telling me because like finally his conscience kicked in Mm. (laughs) rather than like trying to backtrack now that we already knew Mm. so i'm just cynical (laughs) that's definitely one way to read the story is that his hand was forced and so he had to have that conversation yeah i mean i could also see how it would be like kind of the guilt of having been that person that did this to his own son could make him come forward but the timing of it was like right as Rashad was about to get out or right before he got his phone back or, you know, something like that that made me think like, "Mm, not completely altruistic motives. Mm, That could be. It's also interesting because Rashad's brother chooses to politicize the situation Mm -hmm. and the dad's not happy about it. Like, I liked that they were not on the same page. Yeah, that was interesting. I thought that's... And Rashad was kind of caught in the middle. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's really Mm -hmm. true how families work. There's always, like, there's the older generation and the new generation, and both of them have completely different views on, like, how to move forward to make change. And I think it's symptomatic of the way our country has worked is that the older generation thinks being quiet and being, like, acceptable is the way to make your change. Whereas I think we're coming to a place now where, like, being quiet doesn't work. Yeah. Even the things the dad tells the older brother, like, oh, if you would just change your hair and pull your pants up, just feeds into this idea that, like, he, he really, that doesn't work. <laughs> That's not going to keep you safe. That's not how any of this works. <laughs> he strongly believes that he just did something, that if his older son just did something different about his appearance, like, people wouldn't make assumptions about him. I really just wish that that was addressed more, because I feel like that kind of goes with the idea of him targeting this black kid when he was the cop on duty yeah so like it's there but it's not explored as much as i think it should be i kind of felt that way for the book though like it introduces a lot of concepts but it doesn't really go that in depth into any of them frankly yeah yeah it's more about like this really quick week or like the seven days that we're it's only a week right yeah we're working through yeah and and like walking it step by step it's basically like how do we get to the protest Mm -hmm. that's what i felt it was like this is a map of like what happened how do we get to the protest Mm -hmm. yeah i think those topics clearly need addressing (laughs) yeah it just calls for more books i think (laughs) yeah and it ends at the protest right yeah i liked that because i feel like i 
Mm, I just I can't help like thinking about the hate you give, even though they're different books. The cough gets off in the hate you give, and I feel like if this book were to continue beyond the protest, he would get off. It ends there to kind of give us a sense of hope that like maybe something will change this time, even though it won't. <laughs> yeah, one of the other topics that I thought that side part of the story not main part of the story was guy friends versus girls in oh the story. my gosh i was the way the girls were talking and i know it's like typical teenage boy talk or whatever but it's like ugh. it was not really it was not subtle at all i no, found it wasn't both the boys interactions with and portrayal of women super one-dimensional girls are completely objectified throughout the entire book which mm-hmm. you know sure you're a high school boy but i, I thought about it just made it just didn't make me excited about liking the boys as characters. Yeah, and yet their guy friends are given much more di- experience and robust dimension. The dynamics of the basketball team, yeah. Quinn's friendship with the cop family, were both complicated and layered. Is this a problem of like male authors versus female authors? You know, when we read that Grasshopper book, mm. <laughs> it was like that in that book too. And I, before I knew about the author and the kind of person that he is i thought it was like cleverly done to illustrate a point Mm. this is how teenage boys think and you know we're really getting into the mind of a teenage boy it's like oh that's because the author still is one (laughs) and so i just i don't (laughs) i don't know if it is because like it's male authors and they truly think of women that way or if it's to show that this is what a typical teenage boy thinks like i don't know where that line is anymore because yeah in this book there was just a lot of ownership kind of words used about the women and like there was the one girl who had the nickname oh yeah i can't remember remember what it was but yeah and it was like oh you you know i wouldn't do that to your girl i know she's yours and (laughs) ownership and also just like they were things yeah they weren't they were not characters of they were not people yeah other than um the leah the cousin oh yeah but even then it was like she was only important because she pushed the plot forward. Yeah. Yeah. So I was having a hard, I was having a really hard time with that. I just think if you're going to be, if we're going to be having these really hard conversations about the systemic issues in our culture and you're specifically basing the book on like black and white violence, you can't, it's this intersectionality, yeah, right? That's you just can't divide ignored. that from the patriarchy. Right. Like, okay, <laughs> we're just going to focus on, like, black versus white. Not, like, the men and women thing. Well, that's for another. But, like, that's right. not how life works. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's all tangled up in there. If we're, I mean, I just think that if we want to push the envelope, then we should just expect yeah. more. And, like, thinking about last month's book, it was a book that tackled a lot of things. But it didn't feel like, oh, this author's trying to take on too much. Because I have read books where it felt like different things were explored, but like very shallowly so that there was room for it all. But I don't think it has to be one or the other. Like you can tackle multiple issues without it feeling like the reader doesn't know where their attention should go to. Right. I, I definitely hear that. Our dessert is marshmallow pie. So... The part that I totally cried at is when (laughs) they're in school and they are doing a reading of The Invisible Man. They're reading reading it out loud. And the Mm -hmm. book actually like has a number of quotes from The Invisible Man. And um, I personally am always moved by group performative experiences. So I could definitely picture like if this book was a movie, how incredible that scene would be with like 
Yeah. Yeah. Each kid standing up and reading the quote and like, oh, I just couldn't help but put myself in the shoes of the teacher <laughs> just because right? I'm a teacher and like, oh, yeah, that scene. That was my favorite. I mean, that was a more beautiful moment for me than the um, culmination of the protest, even though I thought that the, the writing of that moment was very poetic. But like the most m- moving point part for me was the scene in the school. Yeah, definitely. And I I teach in a very very liberal district which I am so thankful for because I can talk to my kids about like using them and they to be a singular pronoun and um like kids at my school wear Black Lives Matter shirts and like they know what it's for and what it's about but if I wasn't at that school and I didn't know if I had the freedom to talk about issues that are relevant that are affecting our kids lives you know and not have my job be in trouble over it I probably would have felt the same as like those teachers like there's some teachers who are like okay we're just gonna ignore this and try to teach which like even though it doesn't work I get it I get wanting to be like okay we're gonna just that's for outside the classroom this is the classroom I'm gonna teach you math and the teachers who are just conflicted and don't know what to say and the one teacher who just broke down yeah I could just really identify with where she was at and the fact that like the students made it relevant and like you know because Kids are always like, well, why do we need to learn this? When are we ever going to use it in real life? And this was just such a perfect example of using something that you learn in the classroom and applying it to real life. And I would just sob if my students ever did anything oh, like yeah. that. I'd be like, I have nothing left to teach you. <laughs> so, yeah, that was, uh, that, that scene was just. It was good. Yeah. Watching a teacher cry is also like the most intense thing you can have as a student. Like I've only seen my teacher cry a couple of times. One was when a student committed suicide and one was when a teacher was reading a very detailed rendition of the Trail of Tears. Yeah. Both of those moments have stuck with me. It's an interesting relationship. Like the teacher is there to teach you, but they are real people. Right. <laughs> you know? I know. It's no, it's a really hard concept for kids to get. Like when I was in elementary school, I thought the teachers lived at school. <laughs> like <laughs> And I ran into one of my teachers at like Costco one time, and I was like, "What is she doing? Why is she not in the classroom?" She's a doll that wakes up when you walk in, right? (laughs) You know, and I don't know. I the only time I've ever cried in front of my students was when my grandma was sick, and I was telling them that you know that I would need to take some time off to be with her, and that she was gonna die, and like you know, just so they would know, like where I'm at and what's going on with me and why I might not be my usual ball of energy or whatever like just cut me some slack today guys mm-hmm. and there's definitely been times that I wanted to cry but not due to like some big emotional issue just because like I'm so fucking frustrated <laughs> that I'm just like losing my mind with them but that's a different kind of crying like that is there's a way to be vulnerable that can kind of help students empathize with you and some that they're just going to take advantage of that's true. So are your students old enough to participate in the walkout that's planned? I was thinking about that, and it seems like it's mostly high schoolers who are doing it, so I don't know, because, I mean, my kids don't, hopefully, have social media accounts, mm. so they're not, like, looking at Twitter and Facebook at that age. You know, their parents do and should kind of have control over what they see on the Internet. So I don't know that it's, like, a thing that my students are gonna do i know some of my kids are very into politics and very into social justice i have one girl in particular who both of her parents are librarians and they let her read whatever she wants and she is just really passionate about 
social justice and it's really it's awesome to see so i'm sure that kids are aware of it i don't know that they'll be doing it i feel like the fifth graders might Mm. at my school like they and that would be something that you know the teacher could even discuss with the class like let's be a part of this and let's talk about it but like third graders wouldn't mobilize on their own like that i don't know i i kind of want to bring it up at like my next staff meeting to see you know what's going to happen there was that one day last year where i'm trying to remember what it was called officially but women don't go to work this day Mm. oh yeah i remember yeah and we talked about it as a staff and we decided that we supported it but like our students were our first priority so Mm -hmm. we went to work that day but we everybody came a little early and we made signs and we had like a a demonstration outside of the school i don't know it's a really long answer to your question i don't know (laughs) but i'm curious and i kind of want to bring it up with my admin and staff and see if we're going to do anything what we do how we will support students if they choose to do it and kind of what's going on with that right because we're talking about for context there was the parkland shooting in florida and there's now mobilization created by the high schoolers themselves for students to walk out on april 20th it's just so amazing and powerful to see because i mean enough is enough yeah i mean i can't even uh, you know this concept i guess i knew that this happened but like does your school do lockdown drills yeah i think that's not a thing that happened when i was a kid yeah no me either i mean we had earthquake drills and fire drills right it's i'm reading about this on twitter because a lot of people are shocked that schools do this on the regular now and other people it's so interesting to see people from different eras and like there was someone who grew up in the 60s and said we had bomb drills like you know and we had to hide under our desks and things like that so the way that lockdown drills work at my school is um we know when it's going to be ahead of time we do tell the students ahead of time which we don't usually do for like earthquake and fire because they do have to be ready Mm-hmm. to go on a moment's notice but because this one is so scary <laughs> for kids like we let them know hey there's going to be a lockdown drill it's just a drill but here's what we need to do and <clears throat> so what we're supposed to do is we lock our doors from the outside i have a si- most teachers have signs on their classroom saying where their class is at the moment like we're in the classroom we're in the auditorium i change mine to field trip just mm. so that they'll think we're not there we turn off the lights we gather all the kids on the rug And we have to do our best to keep them quiet and away from, like, the windows. Um, It is because, like, half the kids are panicking because they think it's really happening. Because the principal or the admin will come around and jiggle the door handles to make sure that we lock them. That's the other thing I didn't understand is, like, they check (coughs) the doors. And then I saw one where they, like, shoot fake, like, rounds. Oh, shit. Which is terrifying. That's, I feel like that's unnecessarily traumatic. Right? Like. Yeah. But, I mean, they're checking the doors to make sure we've locked them and so half the kids are freaking out and the other half are just talking and giggling and being kids because they know that it's a drill so it's that line of trying to get them to take it seriously because the reason we do drills is so that we can be prepared if this actually happens while not trying to scare them by saying this is going to happen to us right it is intense and (laughs) uh it's not funny it's like absurd but what we were told is our best defense if like a shooter does manage to get into our classroom is have all the kids pick up whatever is nearest books water bottles and just start chucking them yep. at the person with the gun yeah. like in all seriousness that is what we're told to do and I, I, it's it's just mind-boggling and then there's all these arguments about like here's why we need to arm our teachers and i'm just like no no i didn't that's not what i signed up for for this job i don't 
trust myself with a gun. I don't know how to use a gun. I've never held a gun. I have anxiety. <laughs> like, I don't want guns anywhere near me or my kids. Yeah. And it's that whole myth that, like, the only thing that can stop a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. And, like, no. Have you looked at stats about people with guns in the house are more likely to have, like, gun accidents and things yeah. like that? Like, it's just teacher is not gun user. No. Yeah. Those no. are two different things. And I've seen several. <laughs> like tweets and articles written by teachers who are like legal firearm owners who know what they're doing in a crisis who are still like this is a fucking terrible idea <laughs> don't give teachers guns yeah like, what? in the school that's off that's just a bad idea it's also like that's dealing with the symptom not the root cause yeah you know yeah. like the root cause is like we shouldn't no 17 year old or 19 year old should be able to buy an ar-15 or, like, crazy amounts of ammo. It's just not something that we need to have in this country. The reason I w- was bringing up the protest, because in this book we have, like, the dichotomy between how the teachers react and how the students react. Right. And when I'm thinking about, like, the students planning this, yeah, I was like, if I was a teacher, I would do it as well, because I yeah. wouldn't want to bring a gun. T- I don't want to be the person who's like, okay, this year we're giving you guns. Like, no. Yeah, <laughs> I would, like, fully support it. If my students knew about it and wanted to do it, I would support them, and I would feel safe in my job doing so but with these teachers like if i wasn't at this just district that i'm in and i didn't know like you know how like quote-unquote political we're allowed to be i don't know how i'd feel i'd be Mm. feeling super conflicted so i thought that was a really like realistic portrait like some teachers just wanted to leave it behind and other teachers like sided with you know with like the history teacher Mm -hmm. who was just like this is history repeating itself and it's fucked up and then the teacher who just breaks down and cries because she doesn't know what to do. Like, those are all so real. <laughs> so. Yeah, the book is actually really real. Yeah. Everything is, even though it's fiction, it's very, it's very real for the story that's being told. Yeah. That's kind of why I liked the perspective of Quinn as well. Because mm. it's one that we don't really get to hear. And I'm not advocating for hearing it over hearing perspectives of people who are oppressed and people that this is directly happening to but it is really interesting to watch him grapple with you know this kind of father figure person that he thought he knew that helped raise him and like the you know cold dead-eyed like monster that he sees in the video Mm -hmm. and like trying to figure out where his loyalties lie when he's basically essentially forced into making a choice yeah are you yeah it was just an interesting perspective to read and that's another one that like we don't really see too often and it definitely shouldn't be the only perspective like if i read a book about this and it was like all from quinn's point of view i'd be pissed <laughs> yeah but i don't know it's it's an interesting balance to have that plus rashad's point of view i think all of quinn's perspective wouldn't have done the job it set out to do right right yeah because then the story becomes centered on like the white kid and like yeah. oh i don't know how i feel about like this person I don't really know who got shot, but like the person who shot him is like practically my dad, like my own big brother. Um, that would just not even be doing it justice at all. So to have both, I think, made it well rounded, even if there's parts that could have been done better or fleshed out more for sure. The writing is is good though. It is. I'm just gonna read a excerpt from the end where the protest is happening. Starts. As I listened, I looked up into what should have been the dark, autumnal evening sky, but instead the haze of flashing police police lights, street lamps, giant spotlights, the headlights of Police Plaza One, all obscured the sky. There were no stars. The moon was hidden 
somewhere behind the bil- uh, the blinding glare, and it felt like the city itself was collapsing, pressing in, taking only the shallowest of breaths in the squeeze of lost space. The list of names went on, and as I heard them, my mind sort of split in two, one part listening, and the other part picking up the ideas I'd been kicking around in my head all day. Would I need to witness a violence like they knew again just to remember how I felt this week? Had our hearts really become so burnt that we needed dead bodies in order to feel the beat of compassion in our chests? Who am I if I need to be shocked back into my best self? Is this Quinn's This is Quinn's perspective. Okay. So he's listening to the list of names of other um, folks that have had police violence or died in the in right. the process. I like that the last one I think is particularly strong. Who am I if I need to be shocked back into my best self? Yeah. And I think that's something that our nation is struggling with. We can't deal with something unless we're shocked into it. And now we are at a heightened sense of shock all the time in the current state of affairs. Like we don't even know where to put our energies. It makes me think of sort of being loyal to the person who's in the wrong just because like you feel that you owe them or because they're your friend or whatever versus like what's right. Like if you witness, I don't know, a friend cheating on a test or something like that do you not say anything because that's your friend or do you tell the teacher because that's the right thing to do like it's obviously it's a much more amplified version of that but it's real it's something that everybody I think struggles with like when somebody close to you does something that you know is wrong like what do you do are you willing to risk your friendship with that person over you know doing the right thing yeah, what are the priorities? Yeah. Like, are you prioritizing the person or your own personal morals? Like, you're right. the person in your relationship to them or your own morals. Right. And I think that that's also, like, a very teenage challenge. Yeah. I think right now that's mimicked in our, like, are we loyal to the myth of the country that mm. we have written and spun for years? Or are we going to actually challenge the, the moral issues that are literally killing our children? Yeah. <laughs> And it was really frustrating to watch Quinn take so damn long to figure it out. Mm. But I mean, that's real. He wanted to have his cake and eat it too. Like he wanted to be like, oh man, that really sucks what happened to Rashad, but that's not the Paul I know. So right. Like he held onto that for like as long as he could before he was forced to confront it and make a choice about where he stood. Before Paul beat him up basically. <laughs> yeah. Or his brother did. I can't remember. One uh, of them did. The younger brother is his best friend. Yeah. So, yeah. 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 They, and ha- they, they were mad fight on the basketball court or whatever. Yeah, or, or like it room. was afterwards. Yeah, in the locker room. And yeah. he, and they were mad that he wasn't like fully on their side. You know, right. he was riding the fence. And right. So both sides were like, well, like "What are dude, you doing? Pick a side." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the last one that I want to bring up is because we keep seeing this, and it's played out in a lot of books that we've been reading lately. Is mm. um, the role art plays? I'm gonna say our drinks are underage beer or parents' liquor. <laughs> Which is how the whole story starts, is trying to get beer as not a 21-year-old. Um, but in the story, Rashad is an artist. He's a visual artist. Mm-hmm. And there is a lot of description about him drawing a piece and his influence for the piece. And it's, you know, he mentions, like, specific artists by name. And it's, like, very visually described. And so um, I was kind of mad that we didn't get to see it. But we've had a few of these now. This isn't the first one where the piece of art is almost like the fulcrum or like a mm-hmm. plays a really important part. Like the one based in San Francisco where the girl draws the diagram of the heart. Yeah. 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 That also like is the culminating scene. The yeah. Yeah. The, the art piece is the culminating scene And here. So do you mean see it like, I mean, I listen to the audiobook. So do you mean in a print 
yeah. version of the book there would be like yeah. examples of the drawings okay i would love to see i mean or like yeah. the final version like we didn't even need to see the process but like yeah if the art piece is such an important part mm-hmm. do we not get to see the final version like back in the day they used to do plates in books like if you read the picture of dorian gray you know you have art plates that mm-hmm. illustrators did part of the book so it's not like you illustrate the whole book but right. you at least get an artist's concept of it as part of the story and I was like, we have the digital capacity, we have the capacity and the technological technological capacity to do that these days. I just wonder yeah. why has that partnership, like, is it too expensive? Has that kind of fallen out of favor? Maybe, but it could also be that art is subjective and it's meant to invoke something in the viewer. And maybe it's like the description of the art is going to make you picture it a certain way. I mean, in some ways, our imaginations are can conjure up something more powerful than like if we're told like this is what it looks like and shown because then I don't know it might like stifle your own ideas about what it's meant to look like but I think I definitely agree for some of that I mean some of them are if we're talking about I'll give you the sun like that art is more three-dimensional so I feel like it would be harder but you could have still done it a little bit but like if you're gonna have visual art play such an important role in your story yeah and with the the graffiti as well, the yeah, <laughs> that would have been a cool thing to see. Yeah, but I think I think you're right. I think the reason is because they want to leave it to us. But I'm also wondering is the reason because like it's expensive mm. to do that in print and like that relationship isn't something people do anymore. That's interesting. Yeah, because I love the old sc- I love the old school books where it's like here are the plates that you're gonna see. Yeah. you know, and you get you get like maybe five in a big long novel, but you still it allow it also gives like more money to another artist. Yeah. <laughs> If we're going to, like, tout art as such an important thing, why not give more money to more artists? So yeah. that's my stance. But um, That kind of – I was thinking of how he he gives the, the nurse his final mm-hmm. picture, right? And I was thinking, like, oh, here's some women that aren't objectified. And I was like, well, they kind of just fit into the caretaker role. Like, there's the nurse, the mom, the uh, woman who runs the gift store. And I was like, oh, never mind. <laughs> yeah. I was I was kind of like reaching there for like <laughs> <laughs> some female characters that are, you know, expanded upon a little bit more. And I was like, not really. It's just a different kind of objectification. Yeah. No, I mean, it's still not a fleshed out character. Yeah. Which is too bad. But the book is still really good. I thought because of the setup and how it was structured that it was going to be cheesy, but it, it was not cheesy. Mm-hmm. I thought it accomplished that. Yeah. I was happy to read it. Yeah. yeah. I really liked it. Do you have final thoughts? Listen to the audiobook. It's great. Yeah. <laughs> I love that recommendation. Well, on that note, we're going to come to a close. We will see you next month in February for A Thousand Pieces of You. I can't wait. I love this book so much. Really? Okay. <laughs> oh my gosh. I'm obsessed. I reread it for the podcast and that was like my third read of it. So. Oh, wow. Okay. I can't wait. <laughs> I'm fangirling all over the place right now. <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks for listening and uh, bon appetit. Bon right. appetit and... Happy reading. I don't know. Happy reading, yeah. Take the system by the throat. That's the antidote. So I pose a proposition. Take a look, be in support of opposition. Then be proactive, proceed with confidence. Because you know that you can't change shit by riding the fence. Ride the fence. Now get under the